Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Michael Smoridge, and joining me today are our panel of Johanna Hopf-Gardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. So uh, it's been a week since we recorded the last episode. Has anybody been up to much HEMA-related during this uh, this COVID time? Johanna? <laughs> um, no. Um, more than last week, so I did a little bit of horsey HEMA. I tried to get my horse used to um, lance work again and sword work. But I also wanted to do some theoretical work. I wanted to have a look at the Fechtlied again, but I failed. So I, yeah, no, I wasn't up to anything. Does the does the horse enjoy horsey Hema? Oh, she really does. She, she's really into it. And I hope that I'll get to meet a friend of mine who's also doing Hema and has a horse so we can um, do some... Well, partner stuff for Horsey Hema, but we'll have to wait until well, COVID is over. That that's really cool. I'm pretty jealous. Uh, Michael Chidester. Uh, in the past week, I started retranscribing um, one of the Fiore manuscripts, the one that's currently in the Morgan Library Museum in New York City, uh, and I'm nearly done with that. After which, I'm going to revisit my translation of it. Because even though this is a KDF podcast, I do read from the book of Fiore and hold it close to my heart. So, <gasps> and there's been demand mm. for a rev- revision of my current translation. And also, people have been asking me to do the Getty as well to replace the one that's currently on Wicked Hour. So, that's the long term plan. Cool. Would you say that the looking at Fiore complements the KDF stuff, or is it very separate for you? So I think you have to appreciate the context of each one. And also I think that Fiore has some uh, technical preferences in the way he approaches a fight. They're different from Lichtenauer. But I don't think that they're, I mean, they're using the similar weapons in similar contexts. So to me, they're not the same and they're not necessarily different. Most of it, you could you could say, if you look like, so with Lichtenauer's preference for a lot of these techniques is raising his hands up. In fact, the drive up with the arms instruction is all over the place in the, throughout this text. And if you, if you limit his techniques to only the places where he keeps his hands low, they look a whole lot more like Fiore, for example. So you, you can do those kinds of analyses. I don't think that they necessarily agreed about the way fighting worked, though. Yeah. When you... If you went out and you fenced in a competition, would you fence according to a particular system or just a, a mishmash? I've spent a lot more time with Lichtenauer at this point, and I also like Lichtenauer's some of his ideas more than Fiore. So Fiore is much more to me a dagger source um, and wrestling, and his sword staff I think is not as I'm not as familiar with it in terms of practice. So. I've never actually been in a Fiore club. It's just that I've worked on it on my own time. Cool. Thanks for that. So it doesn't come instinctively to me, is what I'd say. Uh, Steve, have you been practicing Fiore? No, I have not, believe it or not. <laughs> I think the only thing I really did HEMA-related in the past week was work on my book, which is going to be ready very soon. All the editing and stuff is done. It just needs to be like all the final stuff to get it 
make it be an actual book needs to be done. So hopefully, I don't want to give any time frame because every time I do that, it never works. But hopefully, but soon. it'll be out by Christmas, right? <laughs> no. This summer? This summer? Don't make me, don't make me say that. Then it won't be out. <laughs> it'll debut at the next one point. Yeah, but yeah, that's what I did this week. I worked on my book. Cool. Uh, T, what have you been up to? Uh, nothing Hema related of any useful value. Okay. Uh, for my own part, I haven't done that much research-wise, but I did get to fence after the show last week, and that was uh, pretty rusty, <laughs> to say the least. But, you know, it was nice. It was good to go out and get the activity that I spend too much time thinking about. All right, brilliant. Okay, so this week we're looking at lines 28 and 29 of the Zettel. Uh, Johanna, would you be able to give that in the original German? Yes, of course. Wird es gewahr, nimm oben ab eine Fahr. Bis stark herwieder, windstich, sich das nimmst nieder. And Steve, could you give us Harry R's translation? If he words it and fends it off, be fearless, take it off above. Turn and thrust if he holds strong so. If he sees that off, take it down below. Thank you very much. So these two lines are describing two separate actions. Is it fair to say? Probably. I'd say so. And the the first one, I think, is normally kind of like known in fencing circles as abnamen. Open abgenomen. Yes, which is just present perfect for open abnamen. Johanna, do you know why they give the names of of techniques sometimes in like the present perfect form, like open abnamen instead of or open abgenomen instead of abnamen? Oh wow, no, I've never thought about it because in the like title <laughs> they often use it in the infinitive, but I see right now that they don't do so in the gloss. But I have no idea why. I would have to look at it. Maybe it makes sense grammatically, but I don't think so. They do that again in um, the Zverhau. When you're uh, doing a Zverhau to the four openings, they say uh, Zum Flug Geschlagen for the oh, name cool. of it. But anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll write it down and look it up. I just think Abgenomen is fun to say. So, um, so to describe this action, I'm just going to grab a, a random translation here that isn't Harry's of the gloss. So, gloss, Mark, this is when you hew in on him with the wrath hue. Then shoot the long point into the face or breast, as the four described states. So that's last week's shooting the long point. If he becomes aware of the point and parries strongly and presses your sword to the side, then wrench up over it with your sword on his sword's blade. Fall above from his from his sword and hew him to the other side, yet on his sword's blade into the head. That is called taking off above. Abname. So the setup of this is a, a bind that's come off doing the wrath you against their cut down and they've parried strongly and pressed your sword out to the side what's the actual german word there is it it must be versetzen um, no ah uh, he says um stark so um yeah misplaces oh. strongly misplaces 
<laughs> I still like misplaces. Misplaces is the best translation for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. It's great. Uh, according to Steve, yeah. they attack he, he strongly. Is influence here. So he parries with versetzt mit Stärk. So parries with strength. Cool. So, so does I, this mean he parries with the strength of his sword, or like the strong of his sword, or is he parrying with strength, as in Macho Man strength? Conan muscles. Oh, cool. Yes, would be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's actually an interesting question. D, all of the above. Like it's an interesting question. Uh, there's very few places. Doesn't three to seven a say strength and hardness or something for this? It like edges its bets and uses both. But anyway, the, obviously at the beginning, it's de- at the beginning of the gloss, it's defined just strong weak as geometry of the sword. But then in the actual techniques, it talks a lot more about hard and softer about strength. Um, which seems to be referring potentially more to pressure. And similarly, the idea that moving your sword out to the side here would imply pressure as well. They're carrying your sword off some potentially significant distance. So muscle strength. Probably, but who knows? I'll I'll be up for strength as in the stat rather than the the property of the sword. And it could be both. It could be either. I don't don't think that parrying with the strong of their sword is going to prevent this technique. Could you, and you could also use it, I guess, against more like a, a destructive beat. But no, that wouldn't happen because the entire setup is you've bound onto the entire their attack. Come off a bind. Yeah, and then they they so they've pushed your sword to the side strongly, and then uh, and then there's a couple of different interpretations of this next bit, isn't there? So the the one that I'm familiar with is you've cut into the bind, they've pushed the side, and you pull up. If you imagine going to say high vom tag above your head and you chop down on the other side. Yeah. And then is is this where the the other binding interpret binding interpretation comes in? Or So I, I think that the, the the traditional interpretation in HEMA, going back to the turn of the twenty first century, would be that you raise up and then cut back. So if your first cut was from your right side. Your second cut in the abnamen is from your left side. So you're moving yeah. around and cutting back in. Um, and then there's a, a more, a different interpretation that's more recent than that, but still has a whole lot of history behind it at this point in our in HEMA would be to cut up and then cut back down still on your right side. So you're merely trying to pass their sword and then cutting back in at the same angle as your initial cut, but inside of their sword's blade. Okay. And those both have quite a lot of adherence, I think. So that differentiates it quite strongly from a. It pains me to say this, but umschlagen. Yeah. So the the difference, as I teach it to, or as I used to teach it to my students when I taught it collaboratively, anyway, um, was that in an umschlagen, like the blade comes around, it does a, a like a circle around and back, and like back some kind of moon, eh? A little bit, like some kind of helicopter blade, right, going around you. Yeah. Whereas with the abnemen, the thing I would emphasize is that it, it's, it's happening upwards. The motion is very up. So it's lifting the sword up past their sword and then cutting back down. And whether you cut down on the right or the left doesn't really matter at that point in terms of that general category. Um, it's right. still going up over the sword. So a parallel in, for people who know modern fencing terminology, it would be a bit more like a coupe, a cutover, where you pick your sword up and come over their parry and hit on the other side. Yeah. Okay. And some people split the difference and go kind of a vertical cut and don't really care where it lands. 
Yeah, I'd have to say that under pressure, full of adrenaline, it just kind of happens. Agreed. Yeah, sometimes I can have him without realizing it. Yeah, that's kind of... I've recently, over the course of this um, long fencing break, I have gone through a bunch of different ideas for um, Obnamen because of some lines that I think we're going to talk about soon. But I did actually uh, meet up with someone else who's been also being safe and done some fencing one-on-one. And my opinion has changed back to just go up and down because if you're going full speed, it's hard to do really specific stuff. But anyway, some of that... I'm going to bring up uh, one thing, the first point of contention for this, which I think is the word uh, rice or uh, wrench. What else do people translate that as rip or tear, I think? Yeah. So in Danzig and Lev, um, the upward motion is you, is referred to by this verb uh, rice or uh, wrench. And depending on... We we know so we know that this is a key word in the Abnamen because later on in the Frazetzen section, when the Zettel says wrench, uh Danzig and Lev go back to uh a form of the Abnamen. So at least that that makes me think that Reis is like a or wrenching is like a important part of this. But does anybody else have so Meyer, so I, I have a lot of thoughts about wrenching, and I'm going to try and keep it, maybe not express them all in this episode. Um, but I, I did a lot of digging in this because it's a word that we tend to skip over in our interpretation of this, or we assume it's an incidental word that just means move your sword. Joachim Meyer, in his book, uses it quite a lot, and he's fairly consistent in the way that he describes it, which is um, that it's a sort of forceful crossing or uncrossing of your wrists in sort of a crimp-like motion, although in a variety of contexts. And he typically uses it in the bind with his short edge to manipulate the bind. Although other, at least once he has you do it in the air in front of your opponent's sword, in which case it's just jerking your sword to the side by, you know, twisting it by crossing your wrists. Um, but essentially there are actions in which you push your palm with your left hand while moving your right hand across above it. Um, if that makes, is, is enough words to describe what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and th- that's not controversial. He's very clear about what he means by Ausreisen and by Reisen. The question of whether that's what the gloss means by that same verb is much less uh, obvious. But I think uh, I've arrived recently at an interpretation of this technique that relies on that verb. And I hope that's what Steve was trying to set up here. And, and I'm not just going off on a wild tangent. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. yeah. So Travis Mayotte, who's one of the head instructors in Maryland KDF, um, has created a, this idea and he's been propagating it around in HEMA here in the U.S. of certain short edge actions that line up very nicely with what Meyer's talking about with Ausreisen. Although he, I don't think Travis has taken to using that word for it since he's not a Meyer guy. Um, but in that case, what the idea is, is that you are hooking and pulling with your short edge. Uh, so the idea would be when you enter a bind, you immediately turn your short edge into the bind. And then with this wrenching action, you push your pommel 
and pull your sword and you can manipulate your opponent's sword in a way that, that they're not actually expecting. And the way it often plays out is you're pushing in a direction that they're not able to immediately respond to. So you can knock their sword off course. Like if they're pushing to the side and you begin to wrench, you're actually pulling on a different axis. So they have to readjust before they can resist you. So by wrenching your sword in the direction of your left shoulder, you can actually pull both swords that way. And they're pushing in a direction that you're not actually resisting. And that produces a very interesting version of Abnehmen, where you end up cutting on the left side of both your sword and your opponent. So it's similar to the raising up over the head, but you're not actually raising. Your sword stays in front of you. You pull with your sword towards your left shoulder, and when you come off the sword, you immediately cut back in. Or you can do the half abnehmen that we'll talk about later on, where you get to the tip of their sword and cut back on the same side. But it ends up being a very different play that also satisfies all of the individual words of the text, and I think uh, creates an interesting scenario. And it also leaves you open to the exact counter that's described further on, all of which are points in its favor to me. And I, but I think that's the only interpretation I can come up with in which wrenching is specifically part of it and not just an incidental word. So I think one of the uh, things uh, that is one of the reasons you see people mixing Abnehmen with uh, Umschlagen or striking around a lot is that in general, in a fencing situation, when you're thrusting and they're parrying strongly, they're going to end up basically over the top of your sword, kind of pushing it aside and down. And because of that, actually lifting upwards is quite difficult if you don't have a specific plan to clear their blade as you do so. So it becomes much more natural to move away from their sword and come around onto the other side. And that ends up turning it into a kind of striking around, which goes very naturally with cutting to the other opening. And especially if you're taking a step with your Zornhau, then taking a second step out to the other side and doing something which is starting to become more like cutting around with a tur. So I think one of the points in favor of a kind of a wrenching upwards sort of take is that it gives you a way to clear out their sword from being on top of yours um, and lift it up and out of the way, uh, which you can do with a, a kind of forcible wrenching of the, the wrists and the hand and lifting up with the short edge to clear their sword um, away from the path you need to take. And then if they keep pushing in the direction they are, as you come clear, their sword moves and you have a clean line to hit. And if they relax, you can cut straight back in instead. So I have, um, I have two issues that I can think of right now with this interpretation. The first one is that, in my experience, fencing, if you give somebody hard pressure, if you push, if you push hard on their sword in any way, their first response is just going to be to immediately cut around. So if you're trying to like, you know, clear someone's blade out of the way, if you just, you know, drop right on top of it and give them a lot of pressure, they'll just cut right around. So I feel like that would be one issue with with this uh, wrenching idea, where you're, you know, being stronger against and pushing back against their force. Well, you're not pushing directly against their force. You're lifting up past it in a way that's kind of weird. And you're not really pushing on their blade directly. It feels to them like you're resisting it, not that you're pushing their sword because you're moving up. Yeah, to the reason why I like it is because it's a confusing thing to have happen to you. And it because your sword is moving, but it's not moving. It's not resisting your pressure. So it requires people to mentally adjust to the new situation you've created, um, which is interesting. 
And maybe that's, and I don't know if that's something that you can eventually get used to, but you're pushing, for say, on, the, on an x-axis, and suddenly your sword is traveling y, it's not obvious what's happening, because you're still pushing, you're not being pushed back. Um, and it creates, it's a straight, it's a, I think that's the, that's what it relies on for its, for its use, is that your opponent has to readjust before they can respond correctly. I think that that makes sense on an intellectual level, but that kind of gets to my second issue with it, is that I would like to see it done at full speed, or practiced at full speed, and sure, that's fair. How it works with an actual opponent with our uh, with our limited modern fencing game. <laughs> and well, once the plague is over, we can see about that. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I like the idea on a on a logical uh, mental level. So I will say that Travis and uh, Kiana Shurkin and some other Maryland KDF people have been using these actions for quite a while, including in tournaments, but I'm not sure I could surface actual video of it happening without their help. So I can leave that as an open issue for now. And maybe at some point they could they could supply it if we don't have the ability to create it ourselves. Um, but from what Travis has said, he, he's used it in tournaments successfully, and Kiana has as well. If we find some videos, maybe we can put them on the uh, episode notes for this. Yeah, definitely. So, cool. um, about the wrenching, just one thing to one one reminder is the word the wrench word is only in the uh, Danzig and Lev, and presumably the uh, Nikolaus. Yeah. Um, Ringek uses the word uh, "ruken," which means uh, like to jolt or to. I translate it as jolt. So, like a quick movement, I think. Is it? Is that what you would say, Johanna? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, like, yeah, a quick, um, yeah, pulling movement, like, like jerking, maybe. Um, I, I was thinking of a better translation, but I think jolt and and jerk um works well. How would you differentiate between rook and zook, Johanna? Um, rook and Zook. Oh yeah. God. I I'd say um that Rucken is a general term for the same movement. So I can use Rucken in everyday speech, and everyone would uh, everyone would understand that I mean a um jolting jerky movement. <laughs> um, but Zucken is more like the fencing equivalent. So it kind of means a similar movement, but it's um it's only used in that context okay cool but i couldn't think of hmm, a difference in translation or in the meaning hmm, yeah so so is it a coincidence then that uh rex tukan is a lot more like an abnamen than Danzig's? maybe not i don't know we need to we need to put that put a put a pin in that when i come back to it in three months is there is there any linguistic relationship between Wilkin and uh Ryzen? So I'm, I'm thinking that uh Zukin is is related to zayin as a verb um it's the intensified version is there a, is there an unintensified version of Wilkin? Hmm. this um, is maybe too esoteric for for you to have yeah. a answer we'll have to put a pin in that one too yeah, I'll I'll put it in my homework. Because <laughs> if 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 Ryzen and Rukin were connected in some way, that might be informative. Yeah. Yeah, I could try, but probably not now. 
Okay, I'm just imagining you're Hannah on a horse with a dictionary <laughs> for the next week. That sounds great. Um, something I want to talk about on the content while we're still on the topic of Avnimen is the setup for this action, um, which is different between uh, Danzig, Ringek, and Lev. In Danzig, Ringek, they talk about um, shooting the point out, and then, uh, like, so you, you do your Zorn, and if you feel they're soft, you shoot the point out. And then if they respond to you pushing, shooting the point out, then you do the abnamen. Um, Lev doesn't really talk about that. And he talks about you do the Zorn and you immediately shoot the point out, and then you can immediately do the abnamen uh, or the becoming stronger, which we'll talk about in a minute. So you have this well, slightly different structure. Lev also says if he becomes aware of the point and parries with strength. I think yeah. yes. they're, they're, they're the same. The next section, they're not, but... Right. It's, the, exactly. it's the kind of flow into the whole action. Um, what you end up yeah. with in Ring Ek Danzig is a sort of three case thing where they're soft initially, you shoot the point and either you hit or you threaten or whatever, or you um, they now become aware and parry. Well, or Lev, they're strong initially. Well, well Lev, uh, he still shoots the point. He still has shooting the point in there. He just does it no matter what. He, he doesn't care if you're like he doesn't check if you're soft before. He just goes in and shoots the point. Um, the yeah. difference is Danzig and uh, Ringek uh, have have a softness check before they shoot. Right now, it is worth it is worth mentioning that in Don in, in Lev and in Nikolaus, this is part of the same play as the Zorn had. They gloss these two couplets together as a single sequence, whereas in Danzig and Ringek they're separated. So you have the Zorn play. And then you have the abname in place separately. That's a good point. Um, so in that sense, you could say that they're a continuous sequence. Although textually, Lev lines up pretty nicely with the other ones. Do we want to talk about the the, the counter to the abname or dive into the beast? Well, the counter's only in um, a couple of them, isn't it? Danzig and Ringek? Or have I got the wrong yeah. stick there? Well, yeah, there's, one, there's one in uh, Spire also. Yeah, That's... I think there's two in Spire. Yeah, probably. Yes, but that's not on this sheet. That's oh, wait, true. it's five and all that column. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so, so the, the, the basic counter to this action is they take off above and you bind on them with the long edge. No, you bind on the sword strongly. Basically, you just press forward with your sword into the space they're leaving. Yeah. So it's kind of a Nacroizen play, but without introducing the term. A what play? Um, it's like you bind into their face, which is quite a fun phrase, or to the head or whatever, however it's put. Winding yeah, I would say this is, could be considered Nachreisen. Yeah, definitely. I, I would say that Nachreisen is the, is the timing that you do it. It's like the, the opening... Well, the, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Oh, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. But yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Joey, did you have something to add? Oh no, I was just okay. Sorry, yeah, I, just I, thought, I, just... I thought I talked over the top of you. Um, I've I've another thing for this. So the motion that you do for this uh, binding to the head, I feel this is the same motion as uh, slicing against someone who does a Tsverhau around. So if somebody comes off, you just do that one motion, like like coming forward with the long edge, and if they're doing like an up and down abnamen, then you'll bind to their sword and their head. And if they're doing a um, 
I, I cut around with its fair how, then you'll end up slicing the hands. So I feel like it's kind of a catch-all um, as soon as you realize that they're leaving the bind. You do this, and then either one thing happens or another. I agree. Yeah, I think in offense and competition, it would just be ignored, and you'd go to grappling. <laughs> well, in offense and competition, you just rush in with your hands and <laughs> and stuff up their next attack, and then grab their sword and hit them. I have totally had uh, had slices scored in fencing competitions, Mike. Yeah, not by my judgment, buddy. I- I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying when it does happen, it's an outlier. Yep, cool. That is true. It works better if you slice them off their feet. I would add, just as, as a note, that the interesting thing about the Ryzen interpretation of this is that this counter also comes up, but it's somewhat different from the cutting the arms and the Tverhau because you've wrenched your opponent's sword towards your left side, their right side, but and and then you're sort of cutting, and they you've taken away the leverage they thought they had. So what happens there is you're, you're, they're sort of, sort of in the space next to your body, and they would have to reset to a position in order to attack anyway, except pushing forward with the edge towards your left side um, and just trying to cut whatever they can find. So it's not quite as uh, it's not quite the same setup as you find in the the Schneiden techniques. But it is sort of if you re- when if you realize that's where you are, it's a really nice opening you can exploit. Cool. Right, sh- should we move on to the the second couplet in today's episode? Juicy no. ones. Probably. No. I have one more thing, Mike. I know you're trying to move us on, but I have one more thing. So another point of contention for this is the uh, is the line um, at his sword's blade. So after no, you that's take actually off, a good point. We should definitely yeah. talk about this. So it says, becomes aware of it, take off above without danger. Above, off his sword, and hew in to the other side, again at his sword's blade, uh, again to his head. So, or is it at or on? It's like a unclear word, isn't it? It is on seine Schwertsklingen. So on. On a n, which is a preposition that can mean a couple things, right? Yeah, you. Well, I... usually when they when they use it, like talking about the person's blade, it implies blade contact. So, like when something is am Schwert, on dem Schwert, it usually means that like it's while the the swords are in contact. Yeah. I, I don't have all the instances of it in front of me right now, but yeah, the reason I want to pull out that it has slightly vague meaning is because if it's if it means at in a directional sense, then it's a very strong argument for cutting from your left side because then you're going more towards their sword in a direction. Whereas if it's on with blade contact, you can kind of cut from either side and still end up cutting pretty much on their sword, depending on exactly what their pressure is. I, th- I think for me, the the important bit about adding this phrase is that with your attack, you're locking out their blade and you're well attacking them. And it's not a, a free cue, so it's not done while you're retreating or anything. That, that's what it implies to me. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, te- the version of the technique where you cut up and cut back down on the same side I think is strongly based on this reading of on his sword's blade, where the idea is to maintain pressure on his blade or at least contact for as much of the technique as possible. So you come over his tip and then immediately find his sword again on the other side um, and slide back down. 
is the way it's sometimes described. Really trying to emphasize the being on the blade part. Yeah, to me, this is like one of the... It's really the, the main weakness of the of the normal interpretation, which I do, which is just coming up and down. Because maybe you're you're trying to lock out their blade, but like if you're just coming up and down, then it's your opponent's choice whether they want to bind on or not. So there's no guarantee that that you're gonna be at their blade again. But I've I don't know. I think that just coming up and down is so useful and it works at full speed that I've kind of ignored it a little bit. <laughs> Something which is interesting here is that um, it's slightly out of the scope of the podcast, but 3227 away throws away that entire idea and instead has you come off underneath and hit the leg. <laughs> what? Oh, is this like the only leg attack in KDF? No, Meteor into the thigh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, and a couple Rather of other bits, potentially. Um, but 327A. It does a normal abnamen first. Does it? And then Beast Vita, and then a leg hit after that. Man, I do not read 327A enough. I have seen interpretations of the part um, where people cut down with the short edge after the abnamen, so it's kind of similar to a shield how. Um, because um, that way you're much closer to the opponent's blade and it keeps your head safe a bit more than when um, cutting in with the long edge. It's not really um, defined there at what edge to use, but yeah, it, it's, I think it's a much slower, a slower motion, but it, I, I find it works sometimes um, when speed is not really relevant. But in the heat of a fight, I usually also take the, the long edge version. But I kind of see the application of the short edge one. Well, the the short that that that's definitely a valid uh, point that I actually forgot about. So first thing about that is it doesn't have to be slower. You can um, you can get a nice flick just like rotating because as you're rotating your hands like that, it kind of automatically brings the blade up and over. So you can get a nice quick flick with the with the short edge around. I'm doing the motion with my hands right now. You guys obviously can't see it, but um, <laughs> come on, podcast listeners, imagining Steve sat in his chair. Yeah. <laughs> and the second right, thing is like that. that's it, Hans Madel specifies that he wa he wants it done with the short edge. So oh, it's not sweet. entirely out of left field. Uh... I think at various points he says you can do it with the short edge or with either edge that's closer. Yeah, but the first he's very expensive in his ideas. Yeah, he he specified he mentions the the short edge though. Yeah. So. Yeah, I I I like to use the short edge when I'm doing the abdomen or the or the cuts afterwards. Um, that's very um vertical. <laughs> Um, if my abnemen um, gets carried a bit to, to the side, so it comes a little um, diagonal or maybe even horizontal, so carried off to the side, I like to use the long edge version. But I, I agree that the short edge version, um, especially in a vertical cut, can be done very, very quickly with just a flick of the wrist. All right. In fact, so well, Hans Madel's, he has several paragraphs in this, but one of them is says, the taking off is nothing other than when you have bound on with someone from overuse and go up upon his sword and draw your sword above, around his sword or point, 
to the other side or shoulder into another hue to the other side or opening. Uh, so, so, so he says, uh, I thought he said either edge here too, but he's he's very clear with to do do whatever you can here. He's a lumper, not a splitter. Good. He he has right. several um like se several places where he talks about the obname and and we don't really have to go into a, a Hans Madel rabbit hole. That might take yeah, a while. Save that for the Hans uh, uh, podcast. Practicing <laughs> <laughs> yes. by the correct book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let, let's move on to the other other couplet while we still have time. Yeah. Uh, no, I have All one right. more thing. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. So this one has several points of controversy. Yeah. Well, let's, okay. let's just like outline what this actually is first. Mostly from the discovery of Yud Lev, which really yeah. takes a has a lot of different wording from the other from Ringek and Danzig. When we had right. Ringek and Danzig only, we thought we understood this one pretty well, and Yud Lev comes along and throws a wrench into it, right? Brilliant. Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll start off with Danzig, which is be stronger against, wind, stab, if he sees, then take it down. Uh, gloss mark, that is, when you hew in on him with the wrath hue, if he parries and remains strong with the parrying on the sword, then remain also strong against with your sword on his, and drive up high with your arms, and wind your hilt forward in front of your head on his sword, and stab him above to the face. So this is strong bind, you wind up, stab. Yeah, yeah. usually left ox. Um, yep. and stab him in the face. I think every book written more than five years ago said this was left ox. Yep. And then there's a follow-up paragraph here in Danzig. If he becomes aware of the stab and drives up high with his arms and parries with his hilt, then remain standing thus with your hilt before your head and set the point in below on his neck or on his breast between both of his arms. That play is dumb and doesn't work and we don't have to talk about it. No, that play is great. It's basically just from the Shadow Hell. If he parries up into that thing that once upon a time I would have called Crown or Cron, uh, just to break Michael Chidester's heart, <laughs> then you <laughs> then you attack to a different opening. We'll yeah. talk about that when we get to Shadow Hell. Don't worry. So let me read what Yud Lev says so we can have the basis for discussion. So same verse, and he says, This is when you hew in wrathfully with him, if he then holds strongly against you with the sword, if you do not wish to take off above, then be strong against him and drive up with the arms on your right side and wind the short edge on his sword and stab him above into his face. So two major points of departure there. And this is Corey Winslow's translation. Yeah. So one of them, the stand interpretation would be a wind against the, the bind and stab. And this one seems to be like a yielding bind. Is that fair? So before we get there, can we talk about the if you do not wish to take off above part? No, I no, think no. That's, Let's start. That's really important. Like we, that stuff that is really important. But we should we should talk about the actual technique a little bit first. I think. Oh, fine. Um, <laughs> so, like a lot of people will argue about this on the basis about whether it's yielding or not, and I think that's kind of a misstatement of the idea. It says so. The the original couplet here is saying become stronger against. And so this is often used as an argument against the idea of going to the right, because it's like, if you're supposed to become stronger, why are you moving away from their pressure, kind of? Um, but obviously, strong and weak have a definition in terms of geometry of the sword. So lifting your sword up, lifting your arms up and turning your sword so that your hilt, the strong of your sword, goes to their weak, the weak of their sword, is pretty much by definition becoming stronger against their sword. 
And it doesn't really matter right. if you do that towards or away from their sword when you do it. It, it doesn't say you strong of your sword. It says become stronger. Yeah, and become stronger. I geometrically make the bind something where my strength is on your weakness as opposed to your strength on my weakness. Well, wait, wait a minute. I, I feel like we should add the, the Ringek also because Ringek adds another uh, detail. He says, rise with the strength of your sword to the weakness of his sword or the strong of your sword to the weak of his sword if you if you prefer those terms. And wind your cross card forward in front of your head or in mm -hmm. front of your head at the sword. So he specifically mentions rise with the strength of your sword to the weakness of their sword. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so T, can you, can you explain a little bit more about what you're talking about in terms of technique? Because we skipped past that part. So yeah. we have the ox wind on one hand. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So what I'm talking about is still basically an ox, um, but it's a very tight, constrained ox. And it pretty much boils down to pick your sword straight up. It ends up with, you end up with crossed hands slightly to your right side. The hilt is in front of your head. You have a bind on the inside edge, which is your short edge. Um, your inner cross guard protects your face, and you have very much your strong versus their weak. So you satisfy Ring X stuff, and you satisfy the general idea of becoming stronger geometrically against their sword. Um, so what many people do with upon reading this is they yield to the opponent's strength by winding around their sword to their right side, as opposed to winding upwards. Correct? Yeah. No, I'm going. Yeah, I'm going straight up. Uh, like the way the way I teach this people is to go straight up and push straight forward, essentially. So it's not an auswinden to use a, a made up word that doesn't exist in any Hema text. Oh, it exists in some Hema text. It's in Yerg Vilhelm. <laughs> is Yerg Vilhelm a Hema text? Uh, yeah, but, but so, it doesn't. It doesn't mean what everybody assumes that it means. I actually don't know what it means because it, he never really explains it, but it's definitely not what people assume it means. I also don't know what Überwinden means, but that's in there somewhere. Einwinden also appears in at least one hematex, but what it means yeah. in Meyer is what people normally mean by Auswinden. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, it's like you wind and then you bring the point in, so it's Einwinden, right? In winding. So, yeah. so, please, so your interpretation of this is to go straight up um, into maybe like the version of Ox that's pictured in Danzig? Yeah, an Ox like that's pretty much where you practically have your right forearm on your mask kind of level of close Ox, right up against your So I would, I would posit a different way of unifying the two descriptions, um, which would be reading them in sequence, where you begin on your right side and then move in front of your head after that. So as you, you're initially binding on the right, and then you move across once you have the strong bind. Um, which I think would also satisfy both of them, and end up still on your left side. I mean, it would. Uh, that would I get. I don't. I don't know why the text is different that way in that case, but yeah, I think the is. problem with that is that it involves so many steps. I think it's going to struggle to happen under speed. Agreed. And I think it would take too much time. So there's that point, and the other point I don't like about that one, and I do like about the going, the ending up in this right side cross position is that if you want to try and put the war, which we'll talk about next episode, directly off the back of this, or treat this as the beginning of the war, which you could. You can read those as compatible enough that this should be the beginning of the war. Several of the glosses talk about thrusting at the opponent's left opening in the as the first action in the war, upper left opening. Mm -hmm. And having the cross-dish arm position is very natural for thrusting to the upper left opening, whereas the uncrossed position, you have to essentially completely change positions again. So you end up having to do big zigzags with your sword very high up, uh, which are slow. 
and difficult to do in practice in order to work your way to the various openings indicated. Well, if you're already in a crossed position and you want to thrust the upper left opening, it's, it's right there. Hmm. But we'll talk about that next episode, I'm sure. Sure. Let me throw in a plug for the Ausreisen interpretation because what I also noticed is it leads into this technique very nicely. If instead you, you want to thrust instead of cutting with the abnamen, the wrench with the short edge is also compatible with the drive up with the arms on your right side and mm -hmm. wind the short edge on his sword. So that's a, it's an interesting um, different yeah, version. Yeah, what I'm doing is basically like wrenching, just turning the point in while I'm wrenching. Yes, but if you wrench across that way, you then have the option of flipping your, your point forward into a thrust after the wrench. So that's also a way that this text could be intended, although I'm not as convinced of that as I am of the abnamen interpretation. But in that Maybe. case, you don't have to decide whether you cut or thrust until the technique is almost over and you have a lot of space to adapt to either one. So that's probably the second thing we should talk about to seek into the other thing Mike wanted to bring up earlier. Can, can I say one thing right before we go into that because it leads into that? Go. So my interpretation, my idea is um, you do go to the right side for the Udlev one, and it's pretty pretty much reliant on 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 doing it with his way of thinking, which is um, don't worry about feeling soft or hard, just go straight in, and then either wind or uh, do the abnamen. And okay, let's let's just talk about that difference first. So I, I think uh, Michael wanted to talk about that, and then I'll I'll go on with um with how this works, even though I know that you're thinking that it doesn't work because people just go to Ox right away and they're going to beat you, but I think that it can. But anyway, <laughs> Michael, do you oh. want to talk about the um, the difference between Danzig and Lev as far as what you uh, do? I don't know. T sounded like you wanted to talk about that. Okay, T. Well, I don't know. I brought this up a little bit already. Um, but in short, Lev is basically presenting this as a with Dancing and Ringek, you have a, a kind of three-position cycle. Uh, you do your Zorn. If you feel they're soft, you shoot the point, and then either you're going to touch with the point, or if you they parry the shooting of the point, you take off above and do whatever that means. Or if when you've done the Zorn, you feel they're strong, they're, parrying, they're strong on your sword, then you do the becoming stronger against. Lev, however, has cut that down. And he says that you're shooting the point immediately after the Zorn. There's no feeling if they're soft to decide whether you shoot the point. And then he presents the Abneman and the right-armed, or the becoming stronger, as two alternatives. You pick one or the other, kind of by preference. Uh, this could fit with some of the stuff that's talked about regularly, about whether this is a an idea of picking an appropriate finishing action based on the context of the fencing you're doing. Uh, in Le Kuchner, we see a bit of stuff where he talks about the ability to finish with several different actions, depending on if you're in Effectula or trying to kill a guy or just like fencing for some other reason or something. Um, so maybe it's a context decision like that, where you can choose to thrust at the face or you can choose to make a cut. But regardless, he's presenting the two as choices from the same, stimu same stimulus instead of as setups with different like single actions that How come from different How do you view the difference in setup between the abname and, and the Bistar Kerbiter? In Ring Hypnotic? Yeah. Basically, the way I structure it... seems it, like they say the same thing for both, to me. The way I structure it is whether you are... 
if you've Zorned and you're shooting the point forward and they start to parry while you're shooting the point, then you do the Abnehmen. Whereas if when you Zorn, they, they're cutting, when you Zorn, they abort or they do something and the bind that you end up in immediately and it, before you ever have the opportunity to shoot the point, you don't have the opening for it. Then you go to the Beast Air Raider. Uh, so before you shoot the point, precisely, your point shooting becomes Beast Air Raider. That's that's going to be in in reality. That's going to be something that you're going to have to determine before you even throw the cut. You're going to have to figure out like, is this person going to like totally lock me out right away, or so are you they can going? Definitely, you can definitely learn somebody's habits on that. Like the way I try to do stuff like this in practice is that I get used to what their habit is, and then when I start the action, I look at whether they're moving the way I expect. Yeah, because like doing trying trying to do all those things like. You know, decide if, as soon as you get into a bind, decide if a he's strong. If he's not strong, then shoot in, and then if he parries again, then do it. That's too many things to figure out in like real life fencing time. So the, figuring out if he's going to be strong as soon as you bind is going to be something that you have to like reconnaissance out of your opponent. Yeah, but if you understand, like, okay, this person tends to want to go super strong in the bind. And I've started my zone and I see that they're folding their structure in that direction. I know that the bind I'm about to get is going to be super hard. Right. Well, I mean, there's an alternative, by the way, which is that the our expectations of what real fencing speed is weren't the same as their expectations in their game. And that these techniques were viable in in um on top of the Fulin phase for the speed at which they were going. I do not think that. I don't think that that can be something that we consider, honestly, because... I mean, you know, the fact is, they describe it that way. They say you have, like, four decision points here. Right, but you can <laughs> you can, you can can answer all those questions using, like, full speed. We can answer all those questions using... You just said it doesn't work at full speed. No, I, I didn't say it doesn't. Well, maybe I you did say... You said only does. Okay, <laughs> maybe I said it doesn't work, but what I meant was... It can work. You can make it work using using different methods than you expect. Basically, what I mean is, if you expect to be able to like get into a bind and do all those things, um, it's probably not going to work. But if you have different expectations, then you can make it work. The the thing I sometimes talk about is there's an idea in some modern fencing pedagogy, which I think mostly comes from Zbigniew Chakowski, about eyes open versus eyes closed actions where you have an eyes closed action is like a pre-planned continuation, like the failure, which we'll talk about in the warehouse section. And an eyes open action is something like, I'm going to bind and then I'm going to feel your pressure and then I'm going to decide exactly what I do. But there's actually intermediate categories and one of them is a kind of semi eyes open where you, you sort of, you have your plan and you know what the cue for that specific plan is. And if you get that cue, you execute the plan and otherwise you execute some abort plan, uh, which is something else. And you can do that at a much higher speed than you can do a fully eyes open deciding on the fly action. Um, right. it, it splits the difference. And you can get quite a lot of this stuff into that framework. Uh, I think it's, it's very interesting that this is more evidence of you'd love or whoever the author is trying to streamline these actions to remove some decision points. Um, if we If we assume that this was fabricated by an author and not some kind of bizarre, inexplicable error that happened in transmission, then 
someone sat down with the Danzig probably explanation and said, this is too complicated and removed some of the particular steps, which is yeah. very interesting. Well, when uh, we get to the, when we get to the fair, how we'll talk about that more. Yeah. Cause it happens again. The, the other example that we have. The other thing is that like, if I was teaching someone, uh, teaching someone this, just kind of as a set of fencing actions, I might talk about this is where the choice points are. Like this is the point where if they're soft, you're going to be doing this thing, or if they're harder, you're going to be doing this thing. So if I'm trying to teach someone how to teach all of these different actions, I'm going to talk about these as the different choice points, but I'm not necessarily going to expect them to use all those choice points in their fencing. So you think it's more an academic for academic purposes? Potentially. Like if I wanted to break down all the different choice points in this action, I'd break them down like this, but yeah. You can throw away most of them and still get most of the plays into things once you understand where those choice points are. I buy that. I have two thoughts that occur to me on this. Um, one of which is just to for completeness in this discussion, I think a conventional interpretation of the if you don't want to take off above is trying to differentiate between two kinds of parries that might happen. Um, and I've heard different versions of that. But if the choice is not, oh, either of these techniques are equal, but rather there's some situation in which taking off above is a bad idea. Um, like maybe if they're presenting their point in their parry, like an offsets in parry, and so you can't just disengage and you have to stay on the sword or something. Um, so, but, sorry, go ahead. I, I was gonna I was gonna talk about that in in uh, my my idea for this. So if they're if they're gonna do that kind of uh, if they're gonna raise their hands and go into ox, then I think that the best option is a mutiran because yeah, I, I feel like that's the, that's the use case for that i i think whether you do because that's that's one of the main problems with uh winding on the outside i'm not going to say alspenden <laughs> winding on the outside is if you're winding on the outside on the right if they also wind into their left ox then they'll win every time they'll always they'll always win that uh that winding so I, I don't think that's actually true uh, you can beat their winding as long as you've got to your rocks first, and then you can kind of crank up your inside edge and cross guard and catch their point and keep their point trapped in your Shilton cross. It's it's tight though. I, I'm going to say nine times out of ten, the person winding the left ox is probably going to win. I, the, the point is, it's it's yeah, it's, not, it's not an ideal situation. Yeah, I'd agree with that. So, I have a question for, for both of you and, and Joey and Mike, if you guys have opinions too, which is if we take the idea that you love is trying to make this into what T's calling an eyes closed sequence um, with his omission of the soft and the sword. So you go in, you shoot the point and you obname it immediately if you're parried or you have the choice of this action. How does this action, which requires your opponent to stay in the parry long enough for you to thrust around it fit with an eyes closed fencing style? It seems Why? like making yourself safe would be the ideal eyes closed technique, whereas this requires him to keep his sword out of your way. No reconnaissance. So there's one reconnaissance is, I guess, the answer. But then the other thing is that an eyes closed fencing style lets you go really, really fast. And so you can make yourself safe as long as he's going to be in the parry for a moment, which is going to be just kind of by natural fact. He's cut. You have two blades together. It's going to take him a moment to do something new, probably. You can essentially punch your inside, like as you punch up, you bring your inside, uh, your short edge and your inside guard and stuff into their blade. And you can essentially catch their point with that as you drive in your thrust. And if you're doing that eyes closed, you can do it very, very quickly. 
So it becomes a lot trickier for them to have time to go somewhere else. So just to just to bring this a little bit out of the realm of uh, the theoretical, I know that this works because uh, Connor Kemp Cowell and his students at um, Philly Common Fencers Guild, this is like their bread and butter is the outside winding. So the mezzo tempo from um, from Vadi, they do it all the time and like they they hit people with it. So I, I know it works. They've hit me with it. So I've I've witnessed it firsthand. This this um, outside winding working. Interesting. It's actually kind of the same as Duplarin in some ways. One of the most effective ways to do Duplarin is to recognize that the moment you, the way somebody is entering the parry or the moment you're going to get the parry, they're going to be strong for that moment. And you can do Duplarin the instant the blade contact happens. And then you hit them before they have time to think about trying to do you a stupid after blow to the face. Yeah, it's, it's the same idea. It's just, I guess, um, different distance because one ends in a stab and one ends in a cut. I'm not sure it's even different distance because I do do clear them with extended arms, whereas I've wind with shortened arms. Yeah. Well, I guess we can talk about that more when we get to do clear For yeah, sure. It's going to be a good one. Um, yeah. I, I quite like to, to wrap things up in a minute. So, T? No, I'm basically, uh, basically done at that point. Uh, then. <laughs> okay. Does anybody else have anything to add to the conversation? Yeah. So just, just to, um, to wrap up my... Uh, my thought that I never really got to finish. So for the you'd love version, you're you're cutting in. If you feel that they're hard, uh, you you either wind up or you um, obnamen, uh, take off above. So the I, I feel that that's like a, the same. Um, they're they're solving the same problem. You're just choosing which one it is. So that means both of them have the same setup, which is a hard parry, uh, pushing you off to the side, and you can you can learn from your opponent whether they're going to do that right away. So you you know either do some fake attacks or you know do do a couple more exchanges or watch what they're watch watch them fight somebody else and see like when you attack are they going to parry off to the side or are they going to go to ox? If they're going to go to ox, then don't, just don't do either of these. Just do a mutiran instead. If they do parry to the side, then you have your choice, and that's it. Cool. All right, well, thank you very much, everybody, for listening uh, to this sixth episode of Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Michael Smorge, and joining me today, it's been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you.